You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Mid-90s, you know they have zero, very little value because there's so many of them out there. And I was trying to sell them, well, nobody wants to buy them. And so I found a gentleman who wanted to buy my sports cards. And I was so excited, so was my wife. We finally get to get them out of the house. And uh, so I go to Chick-fil-A and I find this gentleman and, and I'm going to give him my cards. And I decide I'm going to buy him Chick-fil-A. And as we sit there talking, I find out quickly in the conversation, he used to go to school here. So we have a great school, Kingsway Christian School. It's getting ready to launch here. And uh, they, they literally, he went there, but he got kicked out of the school for uh, behavioral issues. And you shouldn't be surprised by that because that was normal for him. In fact, he was sent to a military boarding school and was kicked out of there. Eventually, his parents sent him off to a foreign country to a boarding school. And uh, he tells me the stories of the traumatic experiences when he literally got off the plane and there were bullets flying everywhere and people like covering up his head and saying, hurry up, get in the car, and like all this crazy stuff that happened to this young man. Well, what he doesn't know is what God did through those baseball card experiences was he started a journey of a conversation. So since then, I've had a number of conversations with him Face-to-face, he's bought more cards for me, and face-to-face, we just went out to lunch to talk. And he tells me stories about his walk with God and his life journey and experiences. So one day, I'm writing my sermon, which I tend to do on Wednesdays, and I'm writing my sermon, and he reaches out to me through Facebook Messenger, and he says, hey, are you available to marry me right now? Uh, so through our conversations, I knew he had a girlfriend that eventually became a fiance. I knew that they were living together, and I knew that she was in the process of getting a divorce, but it hadn't actually happened yet. But apparently that day, the paperwork came in, and they were waiting. There was just this thing where it was just being long and drawn out, and, and I was like, look, here's the bottom line. I can marry two believers, I can marry two unbelievers, but I cannot marry a Christian to a non-Christian. The Bible's clear on that. Now, if you have questions on that, I'd love to talk more about that later. I'll talk about it in other sermons, don't have time right now. But that was my conviction based on what the Bible says. I said, so we can get together, but I gotta find out where you both land on this thing. So I go buy them lunch at Stone Creek, and we sit down together, have a very long conversation. I come to the conclusion, neither one of them are believers. They're both Mormon. Now, probably the Mormon church would say not great practicing Mormons, but they are Mormon nonetheless. Now, again, Christianity, Mormonism, not the same thing. Mormons claim us. We don't claim them. Another debate for another day, another discussion for another day. This is important because there's this continual pattern of God pursuing this man and now going to be his wife. I bring them back to the church. And in the venue over there, just over a year ago, I married the both of them. Christina Ward runs out, buys us flowers, comes running down and says, I got the flowers for you. I am uh, looking a little scruffy at sermon day, so I didn't like dress up, you know, because I dress up so often. And, um, but we did this wedding, and they just called me and said, we're getting together to celebrate. Can you meet us? And now they're moving to Utah. And here's the thing, like, they're leaving, and I may never see them again. But I know this, God is pursuing them. God is chasing them. And the deeper our conversations go, so sometimes they're having, they're having like this major fight and they're both reaching out to me on Facebook Messenger. Like, what do I do here? He said this, she said that, he did this, she did that. And I'm speaking truth and life into them. And now they're reaching out to me and saying, before we leave, we really wanna sit down with you and just say goodbye. And I am so touched. I'm like, this started with baseball cards. But here's what I know, it was never about baseball cards. It was always about the fact that God is chasing them. 
How do I know? Well, there's a lot of stories I can't tell you because it would be too hard. It wouldn't be mine to share. But I'll just say this. Both of them come from profound wounds, profound trauma. A very short version story of his, I think it's safe enough to tell. The last memory he has of his biological parents, he was roughly three years old. That's when he was separated from them because his mom and dad and his aunt and uncle were taking drugs, I believe it was across the border, when they were busted by, I think it was FBI agents, and at that point he was separated, never to see them again. He was eventually adopted by a great Christian couple who did the best that they knew to do to pour into him. But what my friend doesn't see is that he has spent his entire adult life trying to find a place to fit in, trying to find a way to connect with God and with others. He went to Vegas for a while and traveled the circuit, literally working the poker circuit, but also on the side, he started making drugs himself and selling it. He was literally moving from hotel to hotel and house to house, just trying to stay one step ahead of the bad guys who might be trying to chase him down. And each step, he's getting in and out of relationships, in and out of gambling, in and out of just a lifestyle that kept bringing him more and more and more pain. So tell me, what did it kill him? Did it make him stronger? I'm going to guess. He might argue yes. Just like some of you and your pain might argue yes, I'm going to say no. It's left him terribly wounded, terribly isolated, with tons of sinful and destructive bad habits that keep ruining every relationship and circumstance in his life that he's trying to work through. See, what doesn't kill you doesn't make you stronger, but what doesn't kill you makes you wounded. And when you're wounded, you have an open door for God to walk through. Now, let me show that to you in the Bible. So we're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 8, If you have a Bible, feel free to open it right now. If you don't have one, there should be one in front of you somewhere, maybe underneath you, depending where you're sitting. If you don't know how to find the book of Acts, no worries. It's going to be up here on the screen the whole time anyway, unless we have a screen problem. Either way, I'll read it. So somewhere or another, you'll get it. Don't worry about it. But if you're looking for it, it's roughly three-fourths of the way through the Bible. A good ballpark about where the book of Acts is. And let me set up the book of Acts for you, chapter 8. And so in Acts chapter 8, by the time we get here, Jesus has died on the cross and he rose from the dead. And he told the disciples, I want you to take the message of my death, burial, and resurrection. I want you to take it to the ends of the earth. You're going to be my martyria. You're going to be my martyrs to the ends of the earth. Now, martyr in that day doesn't mean what martyr today means. Martyr literally just means witnesses, proclaimers. You're going to be the ones who go and tell the world about me. Now, often the early witnesses of Christ were killed. They were persecuted, thrown in prison for their faith. So martyr, the way we use it, works, but that wasn't the original meaning. So they're going to go and be witnesses to the ends of the earth. But what happened? was after the Holy Spirit came, the church stayed right there in Jerusalem. They didn't go to the ends of the earth. So persecution comes. Everything gets really bad. In Acts chapter 7, in fact, we kind of see this. A guy named Stephen is stoned to death for teaching that Jesus died on a cross and rose from the dead to be our Savior, and he's stoned to death. So the church disperses because the persecution is so great and starts to run away. And one of the places they run in Acts chapter 8 is a place called Samaria, Now, that's important because Jews hated Samaritans, and Samaritans, for the most part, hated Jews. If if I I could spend an hour on this, I won't, but here's the short version of that story. So Samaritans were kind of like half-Jews. The Old Testament was clear that Jewish people were only allowed to marry other Jewish people, but the Samaritans in what we call the, the, when the Babylonians came in and the Assyrians came in and they um, ransacked Jerusalem hundreds of years before Christ, what happened was many of, some of the Jews married some of those Assyrians and Babylonians and they 
became uh, a mixed race, so to speak. And so the Jews believed they had totally spit in the face of God. Well, they believed that the Jewish people didn't have the religion right, and they were constantly fighting all the time at each other, like we see all the time all over the world when it comes to religion. Well, this is important because uh, Jesus shows everybody that we're tearing down the walls, and he actually shares the gospel with a Samaritan woman who was caught in sin at one point. And she goes back and starts telling everybody in her little clan about this Jesus guy, how he might be the Messiah. So now when persecution comes and the Jews, sorry, the early disciples leave Jerusalem and go off into Samaria, it kind of blew everybody's mind because they believe it. And people start accepting Christ and getting baptized, and they receive the Holy Spirit, and it's just an amazing work of God. That's the beginning of Acts chapter 8. And then we find ourselves at this little place. That's your setup for Acts chapter 8. Now verse 30 or 26. Here we go. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, remember he's in Samaria, go south to the road, the desert road, that's important, I'll get that in a second, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Candake which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. Now, that whole queen of the Mandate thing, or Candake, said that wrong, the queen of the Candake, and some translations have put Queen Candace or the Candace Queen or whatever, and so that, that possibly is her name, her title. Uh, I'll get to all that in a second. In two verses, you just learned a ton of history and you didn't even know it. Congratulations. Let me try to unpack this just a little bit for you. So, verse 26 again, an angel of the Lord came to Philip. And the word angel in English is the word angelos in Greek. It doesn't mean what we think of. It literally just means messenger of God. That's all it means. So we think angel, we think spirit being like Michael or Gabriel. That's not necessarily what it means. It might mean that, but regardless, it wasn't the point of the text. So whatever Philip experienced there, it didn't freak him out like when Mary saw an angel and it didn't freak him out when Joseph saw an angel. Everybody like sees an angel, like, they turn white, they freak out. Philip didn't freak out. So maybe he didn't see a literal angel. Could have been a messenger from God. It could have been the Holy Spirit. We don't know. All we know is he was told go, so he went. And he goes immediately to the specific place he's led to. And when he gets there, verse 27, he meets an Ethiopian eunuch. Now, that may mean very little to you whatsoever. And I'm going to do my best here. I don't encourage you to Google this. Definitely not right now. So somebody from Ethiopia, that one's easy, right? Ethiopian, they're from Ethiopia. Now, Middle Eastern people had, uh, they would have, much like today, they would have maybe what we would call olive-colored skin. They wouldn't be black or dark brown, but kind of darker than most of us Caucasians, but not real dark. So an Ethiopian would have stood out very different than your typical Middle Eastern Palestinian person. The fact that he's a eunuch means that... um, Yeah, I know, right? Some of you are laughing already. How's he going to do this one? Let's see. This will be fun. It means that the lower part of his manhood was crushed or removed. Come on, is that pretty good? Thank you, thank you. I remember sitting in Acts class in Bible college, and uh, my teacher was trying to explain this. I thought I could, it was way clearer than he was, and he was trying to, he was really embarrassed and turning red, and we were having fun at his expense, but to be honest, I didn't understand what he meant. Maybe you don't either, but here's what he said. I said, I don't understand. Why, why is it a big deal that this guy is a eunuch? And he said, well, it's just that eunuchs were cut off from society, I lost it. 
I was the only one in the class who thought it was funny because nobody else got why it was funny. And then he realized what he said, turned completely red, put his head down. He's like, can we move on now? Everybody else figured out why it was funny in a minute. So this would often happen to young children. Usually you would be chosen to be this when you were young. Sometimes it would happen when you were a man. It's hard to nail this down because different cultures at different time periods did it differently. So we aren't 100% sure, but we know this. It rarely was ever chosen. It was chosen for you. And the bigger problem is this. The fact that he's a eunuch, why would they do that? Well, sometimes a king would have other men in his council do this so that whenever he was out doing kingly things, that this person could not seduce his wife or possibly his harem. Not only that, but a eunuch could never, even if he over, tried to overthrow the king and gather together the right soldiers and resources, even if he tried to overthrow the king, he wouldn't be allowed to be a king himself because he was a eunuch. He was not a man. So everywhere he went, even though he's really well-educated, even though he's wealthy, everywhere he went, he doesn't fit in. He's not good enough. He can never be this. His pain has been chosen for him. And he's got a choice. Am I going to be a victim my whole life? Notice this. This man He went down to Jerusalem to worship. And why is that important? Somewhere along the way, this man met God. But the problem is, while in his own hometown, you can find this in multiple ancient Greek writings as well as even a Hebrew historian named Josephus who wrote for the Roman government, both sides of this, right, the Greeks and even the Hebrews write about Ethiopia, or about eunuchs, sorry, not Ethiopians, they write about eunuchs, and they say they are greedy, they're evil, they're mean, you can't trust them. This guy can't find a place to fit in, but he met the God of the Bible, and he goes to Jerusalem to worship, and you know what he found when he got there? He's even less accepted there. See, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1, tells us that if a man's privates, it goes into greater detail, are crushed or cut off, then he is not welcome in the worship of God. So not only is this man a Gentile, which means he could only come into certain parts of the temple, but he also is a eunuch. He literally cannot get access to God. He's not welcome in any family, in any community, in any home he goes to. Everybody judges him and pushes him away. And because he's a eunuch, he can't even have a family. He is isolated and alone. But hey, it's okay, because what doesn't kill you just makes you stronger. Nah. What doesn't kill you makes you wounded. But when you're wounded, God can show up. See, connecting with God, it begins when we move from simply hurting to hungry. Here's what I mean by that. See, life has happened, and some of life is your choice. You've made some bad decisions that have led you to whatever you're dealing with right now. Some other people's decisions have done some things to you that have left you hurting. So, are you going to be the walking wounded the rest of your life? Are you going to turn that hurt into hunger, into pursuit of God, in spite of whatever it is you're dealing with right here, right now, today. Let's take a look at what happens for this man. Acts chapter eight, verse 28. And on his way home, sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet, the spirit told Philip, 
go to that chariot and stay near it. And Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless somebody explains to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Okay, a few things. Again, we know he's wealthy. How do we know? He's got a chariot. Only the wealthy had chariots. Number two, whatever's going on here is supernatural. So again, this messenger told Philip, go to this exact desert road. You ever looked at the Middle East? You remember how hard it was for us to find like Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein? Like the desert out there is a desert. But he told him exactly where to go. And when he gets there, he sees the guy. And the spirit says, hey, Philip, go to him. Here's what you need to know. I don't know how you got here. I don't know what's happening in your life. I don't know where you are in your walk with God. But I know this, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God is chasing you down. It fights till you're found. It leaves a 99. God is pursuing you. And see, if you'd get past the fact that, you know, it's ironic It's like rain on your wedding day. It's like a free ride when you're already late. (laughs) If you'd get past all that and just for one minute go, maybe there's a God who doesn't want to leave me with just wounds but wants to heal my wounds and leave me with worship. So Philip runs up alongside the chariot. Now imagine this. Remember, he's on a desert road. I don't know about your car. My car needs some new struts. It's bad. I don't know what your car's like, but I want you to take your car and imagine in your mind, you've gone out to some country road here in Indiana. There's plenty of them, right? What's gonna happen as you drive down that country road? Right? You're like trying to read your phone. It's like, I can't read it. This guy has a scroll. Well, that tells us a few things. Number one, he's wealthy. He can afford a scroll. Most people didn't own scrolls. Number two, he can read. That means he's educated. Roughly 94% of people couldn't read and 96% couldn't read or write in that culture at that time. So he's got a high enough position. You know, he works in the treasury of the queen of Ethiopia. He better be somewhat educated. And he's reading almost guaranteed in Hebrew. He could have a Greek scroll, it's possible, coming from the Septuagint. But he's reading this bad boy and he's reading it out loud. I think part of the reason he's reading it out loud is because it's bouncing all over the place. And he's reading it out loud and Philip hears him. And Philip comes alongside of him. And he says to me, do you understand what it is you're reading? And the dude's like, how can I understand it if somebody doesn't tell me what it means? And here's the thing. While you first connect with God when you move from just hurting to getting hungry and pursuing God, you will grow in your walk with God when you accept that you need assistance. You will finally connect with God when you go, you know what? I can't do this on my own. Now, Many Christians, and some sitting in this room will say, you know what, Pastor, God's word takes care of itself. I think it says in Isaiah, I think it's 55 or 6, somewhere in there, that, that God's word will take care of itself. God's word will always go out and accomplish its purposes. So, you know, Pastor, if we just get people a Bible and they read it, they'll do okay. That's why the Gideons put Bibles in every hotel. And I'm thankful because before I had like my tablet and my cell phone, and I'd always forget my Bible and be like, hey, look, I got a Bible in any hotel I'm in. Except for the problem is, you know this because you've experienced it. You picked up your Bible before and went, I have no idea what this thing is saying. I don't get it, I don't know what it means, I don't know what to do with it, and you'd be no different than this eunuch. See, you ever read your Bible, how often God tells us in the Bible that the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and the people of God, those three together are the witnesses. So the Word of God is what tells us the story of God, the Spirit of God is what brings the conviction, but it's the people of God opening their mouth and explaining things in a way that makes sense, and that's what Philip does with this eunuch. So now take a look at what happens next. Verse 32, this is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. 
This passage I'm about to read you comes right out of Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 and 8. Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. And that's huge. I'll tell you why in just a moment. But know this, for those of you visiting or maybe watching online three months from now, whatever it is, Isaiah was written almost 700 years before Jesus. And yet it gives us unbelievable detail of his life, his ministry, and his death. If you're struggling with whether or not you can trust the Bible, that alone ought to tell you something. Here we go, Isaiah 53, verse 7, or Acts chapter 8, verse 32. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. Now, the he here is Jesus, and the him in a moment will be God, but we'll get there. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And the eunuch looks at Philip and asks, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. When Tom Wright translated this text from the Greek, he says, and Jane, or, uh, Philip took a deep breath and told him all about Jesus. Why? Why Isaiah 53 is one of the most crucial passages in all of the Bible. It is what we call the suffering servant passage. It's one of them anyway. The suffering servant passages that prophesied about Jesus, what he would go through, and what he would accomplish when he went through it. But I wanted you to go back through it. I want you to see in verse 32 for a second. Again, if this man is a eunuch, what happened to him was not his choice. What this passage means in Isaiah is in the same way that he, Jesus, was led like a sheep to the slaughter, he did not open his mouth. What does that mean? Well, what happened is in the story of Jesus, he was taken to trial to Pontius Pilate and back to Herod and Herod to Pilate and back and forth he went, multiple trials, and in every single one of them, he sat there with his mouth closed. They literally accused him of all kinds of lies. Often we are told that their lies contradicted each other, which is why Herod and Pontius Pilate couldn't convict him. They couldn't find anything in any of these accusations that would stick against the wall. But Jesus stood there stoic and silent the whole time. And 700 years before Jesus shows up, we were told that he would do that. Wow. Look at the next verse. Now, this is fascinating. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Are we talking about the eunuch or Jesus? Where's the justice for the eunuch? Most likely, he didn't ask for this. It was done to him. And yet, see, this is really interesting when you look at the very next verse, and who could speak of his descendants? Look at history. Jesus died in his early 30s. He was crucified in his early 30s. He never married, never had, kid, had kids. As far as we know, his family is us. But guess who else it's true for? The eunuch. I find it extremely, extremely powerful that this man is pursuing God in spite of all of life's hurts. And his pain has led him to Jerusalem where his pain has only increased because he can't even get close enough to God to worship. But while he's there, they were probably teaching on this very text, which is why he bought that scroll and took it home with him. And as he's reading the very text, he finds himself in Jesus' story. 
And I'll tell you this. Every time I read the story of Jesus, I find me in the story. And I find you in the story. Because God knows what you're going through and what I'm going through. And Jesus lived a real life where he went through everything that we can relate with. And so depending on which part of the story you read, certain parts are gonna jump out and stick and other parts aren't. But this part, in this moment, God is connecting the dot and saying, what didn't kill you won't make you stronger, but it'll give me the chance to change your life. Notice what he says next. For his life was taken from the earth. Now I wanna show you something. I wanna continue this parallel, this one track, two track parallel here. Parallel one, this is prophecy about Jesus. Parallel two, God is using the life of Jesus to speak into the life of the eunuch. Let's go to Isaiah 53 for a minute and read this first six verses that came right before these two that we were just quoted here in Acts chapter eight. Let's take a look at those. We're gonna see these two things taking place. Isaiah 53 verse one. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Okay, so just that alone. This man is an Ethiopian, Gentile. He's on the outside. He's a eunuch. He's on the outside. But who has believed the message and who has God revealed himself to? This man. So who's he talking about? Jesus. Who's it applied to? This man. Who else? You and me. Verse two. He, that's Jesus, grew up before him, that's God, like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. Meaning this, he was, came here to earth, he was just a baby, he grew up just like a teenager and any other kid would, except for that he'd never sinned. He did that, just like us. He grew up before God. In fact, this is why we're told in Luke 2.52 that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature before God and man. He was growing. He had to become a human and live the human life so that we could relate with him. And had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Some has gone so far as to say Jesus must have been ugly because of this verse. We have nothing in history to say he was or he wasn't. Maybe Jesus was a little homely. I don't know. I know this though. Jesus, we know, sometimes lived with wealthy people and sometimes lived poor outside without a bed. Everybody could relate with him. Jesus didn't have a Porsche. He didn't have a chariot. In fact, he had to borrow a donkey to ride on. We're told that Jesus at one point says, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but I have no place to lay my head. I'm gonna sleep outside on the ground tonight with my head on a rock. There is nothing about him that would make you think, oh, I gotta get close to that guy. Maybe he'll give me his Porsche. That wouldn't make sense anyway, but you get what I mean. And this passage told us it would be true 700 years before he showed up on the scene. But is it also true about the eunuch? Anybody looking at that dude and saying, oh, I wanna have a life like that. Any guy in this room hear me describe what a eunuch is and think, oh, I can't wait to go home and try it. (laughs) Just saying. Verse three, he was despised and and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. What does that mean? Well, I find this very powerful. Over the weekend, I was hanging out with my boys, sent mama away to have some mama time. And uh, one of my boys is, it made, asked a question about God, and I'm trying to answer it. And in case you don't know me well, I don't do good with brief and clear. Like, I do good with long and verbose. 
But I've learned because of my kids, especially because I have a four-year-old, I have a nine, a seven, and a four, because of my four-year-old, if I'm not short and clear, he's got like a two-minute time length, and he's like, Dad, when are we gonna go do something else? So they're asking me a deep question, and I look at them, and I say this phrase all the time, and I say, boys, here's the thing to know about God. So Jesus lived the life that we failed to live. See, boys, your daddy's a sinner. I'm like, we know. I'm like, yeah, I know. Like, sometimes... I tell you I'm gonna do things and I don't always do it. And sometimes I get angry and I know that's not pleasing to God and honoring to your mother or to you. I know that. But Jesus never did that. He never sinned. Jesus lived a life that I've tried to live and failed. But then he died on a cross. He was innocent. He did literally nothing wrong. He never sinned against God. In fact, he never sinned against anybody else. They couldn't find anything to stick to crucify the guy and yet they did it anyway. So he lived a life I couldn't live He died the death I should have died, but when he rose from the dead, he gave me the life that I couldn't get on my own, that I've worked so hard to attain, and I just kept failing to truly grasp. And the powerful thing about this verse is, is he says, he took my pain, he bore my suffering. What didn't kill me made me wounded, but he took my wounds. And we look at it and say, he was punished and struck by God. Why? So here's why. Verse five. He was pierced for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquity or sin. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we're healed. Do you hear that? What that means is in your pain, in your wound, whether you caused it and life just feels so out of control because of some poor choice you made, or whether others have caused it by their poor choices and the pain that they've bestowed upon you, either way, when we look to the cross, we find everything we need in him. The peace that you're searching for, that you're longing for, it's in him. It's in him. So how do I get it? Well, the very next verse says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What Isaiah is getting to is what Paul quotes and Jesus quotes and everybody in the New Testament quotes is simply this. See, all of us are guilty, every single one of us, except for him. We obey, or we rebelled against God. We did not obey And God chose not to crush us, but to rescue us, to redeem us. And the eunuch is hearing this very message. It's this very text that Philip has. What a great text. You'd almost think like God ordained the moment. And Philip is reading this text to the eunuch and explaining to him detail by detail how Jesus is the answer. And here's what happened in Acts 8, verse 36 And as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here's some water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized them. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. There's a lot to unpack here. Number one, let's start from the back and work our way forward. Number one, the moment he comes up out of the water, God is like, you're done here, Philip, see ya. Remember what I said, the moment that we accept we need assistance, God can step in and do something about it. He may not use the same person in your life all the time. He used Philip, Philip did his job, you're done. Now here's the thing, 
I don't know what happens next to the Ethiopian. The Bible story stops there. I know this. I put all of my hope in the Bible because I trust it. Why do I trust it? Well, the short version of a very long story is there are tens of thousands of entire documents and fragments of documents of the New Testament books and the Old Testament books. Tens and tens of thousands. And they all agree with each other down to a couple minor words that change nothing in meaning, but just minor word usage here and there. That is untrue of every historical document that I know of in the history of the world. We have documents of things like Plato's writings. We have like three documents of this and eight documents of that. Not thousands and tens of thousands of them. And it's from hundreds and hundreds of years later. And we don't question whether or not Plato wrote those words. But we question whether the New Testament authors wrote these things when they historically have more value and more weight to them than any other document. Besides, this one always gets me. This is the one that convinced me one day. The Bible is written 66 books Roughly 30 different authors in three different languages over 1,500 years on three different continents, and it tells the same story from beginning to end. The writers of Lost had to hire somebody to make sure that they didn't contradict themselves, and they wrote the entire story from beginning to end, and there are still entire websites dedicated to their contradictions. You explain that one to me if this is just another But the Bible doesn't tell us what happened to the Ethiopian eunuch. History does. History tells us that eunuch went down to Ethiopia and launched a church. And it's because of him the gospel went to the southernmost parts of the world. Now, today, we think of the end of the world somewhere around Antarctica. You wouldn't want to go there, but it's the southern tip of the world. But in that day, this was the furthest region of the earth is what was considered and what it was called in that day. Remember, Jesus said you were gonna go from Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What Luke is telling you in the book of Acts is God did exactly what Jesus said would happen. Secondly, I guess thirdly, when the eunuch met Jesus, he went all in. Studies today for guys like me in church leadership say that some of you who are visiting Kingsway, you'll date our church for six months to a year before you'll ask us to marry you. That's a really weird analogy. Maybe I should find a different one. But that's the analogy that's out there. People today will maybe visit a church for six months to a year, sometimes longer, before they decide to go all in. And here's the thing. This eunuch, he knows he's on the outside looking in. Think about it. He's driving down the road. Philip just told him this message of Isaiah, the message of Jesus, the message of peace, and that my sin and my life can be dealt with in Christ. And somewhere in that message, Philip tells him about baptism. Now remember, he just got back from Jerusalem. See, the Hebrew people were baptizing, but for them, baptism meant something different than it means for us. See, the Hebrew people would baptize. In fact, they would baptize monthly, and it was this constant purification rite. They would wash away and wash away and wash away and wash away their sins, but what they would do is go back home and keep sinning and come back. What we do in baptism is we do it one time. We don't have to do it again. And the reason that Philip, a eunuch, got out of the chariot and went down to the water and down into the water is because he was immersed in the water because it's supposed to be a watery grave. 
So that when you go down into the waters, Paul tells us in Romans 6, it's like going into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So when you go down, the old you dies and stays there, but the new you comes to life up out of the water. Yeah. And Philip is telling him this story, and he's saying the way we unite with Christ, see, the way we connect to God is when we take our belief and we follow it with baptism. That's how we connect with God. It's not just something that happens in our heart, and he's saying, look, and this is beautiful, because the old you that isn't good enough for the Jews, the old you that isn't good enough in Ethiopia, the old you that is a dead end and has no family and is isolated and has no hope, the old you, the old story, the old identity, it's dead. It's gone in Christ, and there's a new family and a new community and a new identity as you connect with God in this way. And the eunuch says, why not me and why not now? And Philip says, pull over. Pull over. And they go down into the waters. And notice, he didn't grab a cup full and splash it at him. He didn't take his finger and dip it in the water. You don't need to do that. He doesn't have to go in the water if you're going to do that. He goes down to the water because the word baptism means to immerse or to dip and he plunges in there and he dies there and he comes to new life. And I don't know why you're here today. I don't know what painful story or wound or circumstances led you to where you are today. I know this, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It's chasing you down. It fights till you're found. It'll lead the 99. You couldn't earn it, and you don't deserve it. But still, he gave himself away. And he did it because he wants to connect with you. What we're going to do right now is we're going to take communion. Now, if you're visiting with us, communion may be really weird to you. Number one, you may not even know what a cult is, but we aren't one. There's nothing funny about the bread or the juice, but you also don't have to take it. We invite you to. You don't have to. All this bread and juice is, is it's our opportunity to take a deep breath and say, thank you, Jesus. The bread represents the body of Christ. So when he hung on that cross, it's him willingly giving up his life as a sacrifice for us. The juice, it's just juice, it's not wine. Sorry, that's a disappointment. It's just juice, and it represents the blood of Christ. And again, this may seem so weird to you. It seemed weird to every generation that Christians have tried to tell their story to. Everybody's like, that is so weird. But we know this, that when Jesus offered up his body on the cross and his blood was poured out, that blood made peace with God because he gave up his life as a sacrifice for us. And all we're doing in this moment is celebrating what God did when we came to him. So this believer, and even those who are struggling in faith right now, maybe like the eunuch, struggling to put the pieces together, this is your opportunity to come to God and have a few moments and say, I need to talk to you, God. I gotta deal with some things. You may have sin you need to confess, you may have mercy you need to receive. You may need help, and just your chance to pray, and just say, God, help me with whatever it is. What I'm gonna do is start a prayer, and I'm gonna say amen, and then it's your chance to just talk to God, take the bread of the juice as it comes. Let's pray. Father,
There's no shadow you won't light up. There's no mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down. There's no lie you won't tear down coming after me. Those beautiful words say so much about what we've talked about today. We need you. And there are so many people here, God, who are hurting for so many variety of reasons. And what we're all craving right now, Heavenly Father, is to connect with you. We need you. You are the gospel. You are the good news. God, would you right now meet us in this place, hear our cries of repentance, our need for strength and courage and faith. We ask this in Jesus' name.